Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Craig Shreve was born and raised in North Buxton, Ontario, a small town that has been recognized by the Canadian government as a national historic site due to its former status as a popular terminus on the Underground Railroad. He is a descendant of Abraham Doris Shad, the first Black person in Canada to be elected to public office, and of his daughter Mary Ann Shad, the pioneering abolitionist, suffragette, and newspaper editor-publisher who was inducted posthumously into the National Women's Hall of Fame in the United States and whose birthday is being celebrated this year, her 200th birthday, yes. Craig has volunteered internationally on humanitarian building projects and is a keen outdoor sports enthusiast, including climbing, hang gliding, caving, and other terrifying activities. Craig is the author of One Night in Mississippi and a graduate of the School for Writers at Humber College. His latest novel is The African Samurai, published by Scribner Canada and has already been optioned by Netflix. Welcome, Craig Shreve. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here. You've stated that you always wanted to be a writer, but pragmatism caused you to earn a degree in computer science. What kind of writing did you want to do and when did it just take over your life? Uh, yeah, no, I, I've always wanted to write books. Um, I, I've been a book lover since I was a child. I also, of course, wanted to be an astronaut and wanted to be a a chemist and a number of other things as well. But um, writing is the one thing that I always wanted to be and never stopped wanting to be, I guess. Um, And uh, so certainly during school, um, there are opportunities to do that. And then when I graduated, um, as as you mentioned, I I took a kind of more pragmatic course. Uh, But after a couple of years, I started to really miss it. And so I started uh, just working on small pieces um, short stories, uh, just little exercises. I'd find workshops wherever I could to participate in. Um, and so it started off very small. But then uh, I, I realized that uh, it's not at all like riding a bike. I had uh, forgotten how to write and, and produce some very poor content. But um, as I continued on, uh, I started to feel more and more confident about it. I ended up getting a few small pieces published in some minor journals. And um, eventually, uh, I finished as a semifinalist in the 2010 Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award. And that gave me a, a big boost of confidence. Um, I, I joined the Humber School for Writers and uh, worked with Joan Barfoot. Uh, and things just kind of escalated from there. What books or authors have had the greatest influence on your writing? Well, I'm I'm a big Cormac McCarthy fan, and he's one of those writers who I read, but also kind of dissect afterwards, um, because I I'm always amazed at how he can make any uh, scene or any conversation feel like it's incredibly tense and important, even if it's superficially just about uh, something commonplace. Uh, so so that's something that I strive for is is. Um, less about creating drama and more about creating tension uh, and keeping a constant sense of tension. And and that's certainly something that's uh, I've drawn influence on that from McCarthy. 
Um, other than that, uh, as I mentioned, I worked with Joan Barfoot um, and I've had the opportunity to kind of meet with a few other writers and kind of pick their brains. But um, I really just kind of draw a little bit from everything. That's great. And you've also traveled extensively and not necessarily for simple vacations sitting on the beach. How does this kind of travel impact your writing, do you think? Uh, I, I definitely think it gave me um, the ability to empathize with people and understand different perspectives. Um, some of the volunteer travel that I did, um, you, even though it's a relatively short trip, that's usually kind of seven to 14 days, you're, um, spending a lot of time with families in very remote areas and, uh, getting to know not just the family, but also the people in the neighborhood and understanding that they have a very different view of the world and very different concerns and different problems, um, than what we kind of typically have, uh, here, even, you know, no matter how broad or how diverse your friend group may be, um, it's not the same as uh, you know some of these remote places um, and spending time with families there who have just everyday struggles that you wouldn't consider. And so I think just generally it helped me relate to a broad range of people uh, and be able to kind of put myself in other people's shoes and, and look at the world from other perspectives. He's sometimes featured in Japanese popular culture, but not a lot is known about the historical Yasuke. How did you go about your research and finding out what little is known about him? Yeah, it was a, uh, a kind of a full court blitz, I guess. You know, I, I wasn't initially, initially I was just looking into it because I had heard about this story and I wanted to know more about it. So I wasn't initially looking at it from a, a book research uh, point of view. I was just trying to, to, to learn what I could. So it started off, of course, with nonfiction books and internet sourcing. Um, but then once I realized that there was something there, then I expanded that out. Um, podcasts were helpful. Um, there are some really good YouTube series, um, that, that cover not so much Yasuke himself, but the period and the background, there was a lot of things to learn, not just about Yasuke, but about Japanese culture, about the history of the period, about the activities of the Jesuits, uh, during that time, um, samurai culture. There, there was, a, a, and also the kind of customs of the Makua tribe, where, which is what Yasuke is believed to be from, although there is some dispute about that. Um, so um, just kind of accessing all of those sources for that. And then I did have to get creative with a few things. Um, so for instance, I found this um, Facebook group that does feudal miniature Japanese wargaming. And they were actually a really good resource because, uh, you know, books and internet, they will give you uh, names, dates, places, and that kind of thing. But these folks are more concerned with uh, what did people wear? How did they carry their weapons? And a lot of those types of details that you really can't get from history books. Um, and then as I started to write about it seriously, once I kind of got into the writing process, we were into the COVID era, unfortunately, so I couldn't travel. And so initially what I did is I hired a researcher in Japan to visit some of these sites for me. And he, a, a few things we were able to do on kind of like live uh, walkthroughs. Um, others, we couldn't do that because of the hours that things were open and the time difference. And so some of them were videos that he would record and send to me. Um, so that's what I relied on kind of during the draft. And then during the editing process, things had opened back up and I was able to travel to Japan and visit some of these sites for myself. So how did you fill in some of the story gaps that you encountered if you only had a few little facts to, to follow through his story? 
Yeah, so the there's pretty good documentation on um, his uh, his time in Japan, mostly because he was with Oda Nobunaga during most of that period. And Oda Nobunaga is a key historical figure who a lot of material has been written about. So um, it, it, was, it was pretty easy to follow him in Japan. Um, his life before that, there are a lot of gaps to be filled in. There are a lot of different theories. And so um, I was kind of sorting through those to see which were most likely, but also in some cases, which fit the story best. Um, but I, I really was focused on getting the character right. And so as I was researching the character, where I realized what is missing from all these sources is Yasuke's voice because it's all material that's recorded about him, um, observations about him and what he was doing and how he responded to things and et cetera. But we don't have anything from him directly in terms of letters or diaries or journals. There's nothing in his voice. Uh, so that's really kind of what I focused on is trying to get his character right. And um, you can, there are some things you can base that on. Um, he, the way that he responded to shifting circumstances throughout his life and still in each uh, situation managed to rise to a prominent level. It's obvious like he's very intelligent, very adaptable, um, is able to read people and situations and understand what's required. And so that was really kind of the basis for the character. And then when you kind of go back before that to his time prior to Japan, I just tried to use those characteristics as a guide for um how he would be responding to things. So you've talked a little bit about some of the um, fight or battle scenes being a little bit inspired or informed by conversations you had with folks who engage in that kind of thing. Did you draw on your own athletic training at all for any of this writing or other research methods? A, a, a little bit. So oddly enough, um, I did do some kendo training uh, with the Forest City Kendo Club in London, uh, but I did that years ago. Uh, long before I had ever heard of Yasuke. Um, but it did come in handy in some of the scenes. And in particular, um, throughout the book, you'll see that Yasuke has trouble with kneeling and how it hurts his ankles and knees. That, unfortunately, is a result of direct experience because that was by far the most painful part of the training is just the uh, kneeling at the beginning and end. Um, and then also, uh, you know, some of the sword techniques and the way that they train you, um, uh, I was able to draw on that experience and in, in kind of incorporate that into Yasuke's education, I guess, in the book. So uh, it did prove to be a valuable experience, even though uh, it was not at all meant to be research. And you quite sensitively cover the culture and mythology of Japan. So that must have been a huge undertaking, not to mention the travels of the Portuguese uh, and um, the Jesuits, as you mentioned. So... How long has this been a germ in your your mind? Um, so I I think I so I, I first came across Yasuke just on like a short YouTube video that didn't have very many details, and I think that was in 2017. Um, and so I, I started looking into it right away. But as I said, I wasn't really diving into the research right away. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't start writing the book until um late summer of 2020 so it was uh two to two and a half years of just kind of uh getting up to speed on as i said a wide range of of things before i i sat down to to start even the first draft so let's get into technical questions how did you go about plotting this book 
Do you use sticky notes on the wall or different colored inks or digital files? I mean, what's, what's your favorite technique for plotting? Uh, so my approach is I tend to write a very quick and sloppy first draft, and then I spend a lot of time fixing it. So it makes the editing process difficult, but it makes the draft process um, easy. I like to just get it all on the page and then find out where the problems are, what's working, what's not working, et cetera. So um, I really just kind of had the historical record as the um, outline. And the first draft was pretty light on um, some of the elements that occur outside of Japan, some of the, the elements where I was more speculative. So the first draft was uh, pretty much just writing the historical story of Yasuke. And then um, as I'm working on that draft, then I start uh, digging in and filling out um, some of the details and inserting, uh, you know, creative elements into the holes and 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 etc. So, um, yeah, I, I with historical fiction, you have the benefit of having a story to follow. And the downside, of course, is sometimes you wish the story would go in a different direction because you'd really like to write write it a, a particular way, but instead you have to kind of follow uh, what actually happened. So the pros and cons to it. Um, but uh, yeah, I. Um, I'm pretty bare bones with preparation. I had a lot of research and a lot of facts, um, but I really just like to kind of dive into the draft. And then um, really my second draft is probably most people's first draft. So one of your ancestors and mine was Marianne Shad Carey, who you name in your own biography. What kind of similarities did you find with Marianne's and her contemporaries' resistance against colonialism, racism, and human rights violations, and what you perceived of this historical example from Japan? Right. Uh, that's a tricky one. But uh, definitely Marianne is, uh, as you know, is a, from from all the writing, she's a bit of a firebrand. <laughs> um, she uh, she definitely stood up for for herself. Um, I, I love the story of how she kind of wrote the letter to Frederick Douglass saying that he should uh, uh, do more and talk less. And, and, you know, a lot of people, I think, don't like to see historical figures like that fighting, but I love to see it because it reinforces that they were real people. They weren't these kind of mythological, perfect people who had everything figured out. They were just like us and they had problems and they would stipe at each other a little bit, but they uh, they uh, they had a lot of spine. And so um, I guess, I, to, to be honest, I didn't think a lot about uh, similarities between Marianne Shad and Yasuke, but when you ask the question, definitely there are some in terms of I think just belief in themselves and confidence and uh, understanding kind of where to, they can pick their fights and, and uh, you know, maybe uh, take on people that most people think they shouldn't. So, yeah, I think they both have a lot of fight in them. In one of the scenes, Yasuke talks with the samurai called Tokugawa, who was once held hostage. And the two characters compare experiences of unwilling enslavement and lack of freedom. What did you want your audience to understand by conversations such as these? So I'm not the kind of writer that likes to give messages or give answers. I I, I write about things that I have questions about. And so when that when I was researching Tokugawa and that came up, then I started to have questions about, okay, so what is the difference in like 16th century between slavery, being a slave and being a servant? Um, or what does, what does being free mean in 16th century Japan? And so I created that scene just to kind of work through some of those questions myself. Um, and, you know, essentially as is presented in the scene, it's the difference in the treatment. So 
um, Tokugawa is still a he, he's still a noble. He's um, kind of being restricted in some ways, but uh, for the most part, he's allowed to live his life, make his own choices. Um, it's only when those choices kind of butt up against the um, uh, objectives of his captors that that then the restrictions get put in place. So it is a little bit different, but uh, it was kind of an interesting experience to have to kind of walk through that and, and distinguish between some of those different um, models of servitude. I think you address those questions beautifully. And there's a wonderful image later in the book in which Yasuke, Yasuke is called by the name his Jesuit enslavers called him, Isaac. And the quote is, the name failed to register at first, bounced around the air before landing, before I realized that it had once been my own, end quote. So in the end, your Yasuke claims this Japanese name. Why was that important to address in the novel? I think it's about kind of claiming your own identity and making your own choices. He didn't choose the name Isaac. He, he had never chose, uh, you know, any of his former slave names. Um, and so he didn't choose this one either, but initially, but in this scene, he claims it at his own and is able to choose it at his end um, as his name and as his identity. Um, and the uh, there's an image that I use, uh, at the beginning of the book and a few times throughout the book of the sea turtles. And uh, honestly, I initially wrote one scene with the sea turtles in it just as kind of so, like some background scenery. But after I wrote it, I realized that you know, sea turtles being a creature that is born on land but then spends its life at sea is actually really great um, to, to kind of represent Yasuke's experience as someone who is born into one environment but finds his true home in another. And so that's why I started to expand the use of that sea turtle imagery. And so that kind of relates to, to that scene. It's, it's Yasuke finding himself at home in Japan and feeling like he has a place there. Are you working on anything new right now? Uh, no, it's a bit too early for that. I'm, I'm hoping to get started maybe in December-ish of this year. Um, so I have a few ideas of things that I'm researching, but I'm not writing anything yet. So would you like to read something for our listeners from the African Samurai? Uh, sure. I'll uh, just do a short piece here. Don't think this needs any setup, really. This is just a couple pages from when Yasuke uh, is first elevated to that role. The rank of Samurai had never before been given to a non-Japanese person. The citizens, the guards, and the Ashigaru now had to bow in my presence. I was relieved from guard duty so that all of my free time could be used to train and to maintain the simple home and garden and pond that had been provided for me, though much of that work was handled by the pair of servants that had been provided. To ease my mind, I trained. I now had a garden of my own. No longer did I practice in the patch of open space behind the guards' quarters, studied by a crowd. I moved from sun to shade to sun beneath the plum and cypress, watched only by frogs and birds. I stepped off the stone walkway into the soft soil of the garden, carefully avoiding the shoots of carrot and potato so I could practice an unsure footing. A challenge was as likely to come in the mud or snow as on stone, and I would be ready regardless. I slid my feet forward and back, stepped to the side, turned and repeated, all with my sword tucked still in my sash. I envisioned an opponent, created him in whole in front of me. I watched his hands, his feet, his eyes, and only when the time was right did I draw and strike. 
a single downward slice to the crown of his head. I reset, sheathed the katana, began again, forward, back, forward, left, forward, then flashing the katana one-handed across his line of sight to draw his block and plunging the shorter wazakashi left-handed into his chest. I sheathed both and reset. Most nights I was invited to the castle to dine with Nobunaga, sometimes with Rainmaru and the other samurai, sometimes privately. I was given additional clothing and a small stipend. It was the first time in my life I had ever been paid. I was worried about the reaction of the other samurai and the commoners. I was an outsider who had been elevated to an honored position, where that could be met with respect or resentment. I was relieved, but somehow still uneasy with how well I was accepted. I had sealed my popularity at the sumo tournament. Everywhere I went, people bowed and smiled and sometimes even cheered when they saw the two swords tucked through my sash and recognized what it meant. I returned their bows, even more conscious now of observing the proper customs. I did not want to bring shame to either Nobunaga or myself. I had been given an honor, but felt there was still more I needed to do to prove myself worthy of it. At night, in my new home, I practiced kneeling, eating, speaking. The servants looked to me for orders, but I had none to give them, so they cleaned and prepared food, intended and watered the garden, cared for my armor. My hands were something they had never been before. Idle. I looked at them, gnarled and calloused and thick with muscle and scar. They had been put to the cave walls in the mines of my village, put to the tar at the walls of the Portuguese fortresses, to the ore on their ships, to the scrubbing of the seminary floors, and to the perfection of sword and spear and bow in the training courtyard in India. They were also hands which had never held another in love, never brushed the soft skin of a cheek or stroked a plate of hair. They were hands that had killed but never caressed, hands that had gripped whatever was necessary to survive, but that in the end had remained empty and would perhaps always remain so. Craig Shreve, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. That was a beautiful reading. Thank you for having me. It's great talking to you. Craig will be one of the spotlight authors featured during BookFest, Festival du Livre Windsor 2023, happening October 12th to the 15th here in Windsor, Ontario. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.